just before World War II, there was a town called Itasca, Texas. Now, there are plenty of towns in Texas, but this town in Itasca, Texas, it had a school fire that took the lives of 263 children. 263. There was scarcely a family in town that wasn't affected by this tragedy. And during the war, this happened in 1937, and during the war, the, the school wasn't built back. They didn't build the school back because they were so, well, devastated. Devastated from what had happened. And they, they were busy funding the war, getting things done, sending their, their older sons out. And the school left, was left untouched. Well, after the war, like many other places, they began to build back. And this, this town was almost like a boom town. It, it grew, and it grew greatly. And they built back their school, and one thing that they were just totally, totally into, we are going to make sure that our fire suppression system, this is not going to happen again. This will not happen if we can help it. And the new school featured, and I'll quote this, it was called the finest sprinkler system in the world. Wow, the finest sprinkler system in the world. And civic pride ran high. They had the honor students, when they opened this place back up, they had the honor students come in, and they took all the people around and showing, this is, this is what, how the fire suppression system works. This is the best thing that money could buy. Never again would Atasca, Texas, be visited by such a tragedy. And again, the, the post-war boom, it, it, it's continued, and it's just great. It continued to boom, and then seven years after they had rebuilt the school, they had to add on. They built a new wing, seven years. And the seventh year, when they came, when they got ready to hook up the fire suppression system, this is not a joke. It hadn't been hooked up. They had the best system in the world and nothing to feed it. What an incredible story. And just the folly of it. It just, it's, it's amazing. It, it strains our belief. But think with me. Sadly, it's a parable, it's a picture of what has happened to so many Christian lives. So many. There's untold power available. There's untold power available for every believer. I mean every believer that has trusted Christ, who is in Christ, but so many never hook up to it. They don't hook up to it. Therefore, their lives are impotent and useless. Now, I don't know 
about you, but I don't want my life or anyone's life that I love and care about to be defined like that. But church, I've got great news. It needn't be like that. It doesn't have to be that way. It didn't need to be that, that way at all. Would you turn to the book of Ephesians, please? Turn to the book of Ephesians. And it's on page, well, what page is it? I'll, I'll hold off. You can turn to Ephesians 1. I have it written down somewhere. But it should be indented in your Bibles. You should be able to find this. As we continue our series in Ephesians, it's called God's Master Plan, where we're going to look at verses 15 to 23 today from chapter 1. Well, up until this point, the writer Paul has been praising God from verses 1 to 14. It's been a praise. And from verses 3 to 14, the longest sentence in the New Testament. I only have to say that this week because I'm, we're getting past that. But it's still ingrained in my mind because it's just continuous, continuous, continuous. It's praise after praise after praise and extols the greatness of God, literally touching on the role, God, God the Father's role in salvation, the Son's role in salvation, and the Holy Spirit's role in salvation. Redeeming mankind, redeeming you and I from the slave market of sin. We don't, we aren't bound to that any longer. We're free. All the while demonstrating the amazing riches of all who are in Christ have. Beginning the moment that they believe. Beginning the moment that you believe. You don't have to wait to get these riches. You don't have to give a certain amount of money. You don't have to pray a certain amount of prayers. It is given to you from the very beginning. And then he teaches them, he, he tells them, he glorifies God on how they will acquire an inheritance. When eternity begins, so much more and that's one sentence. One sentence. Talk about drinking water from a fire hose. I mean, just hold on. Paul had given them a whole lot to think about and quickly. And keeping with the water analogy, think of a giant pond or a giant, well, let's even go with the big pond, a big ocean, so deep. Can't even plumb the depths of it. It's just so much to take in. And, be, and because he was carried by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as he wrote, the author wants them to understand what he wrote. He wants them to understand because what good is it to hear something and not to understand it? And he accomplishes this by a prayer to the Lord, a prayer to the Lord. And what kind of prayer? It's our sermon title today a prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer of intercession, and a prayer of praise. Would you stand with me as I read this morning's passage? 
Again, it's found in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. For above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Finally a period. (laughs) He's excited. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. If you're taking notes this morning, you already have the outline in front of you. The prayer begins with thanksgiving, then moves to intercession, and finally to praise. And speaking of thankfulness, being more specific, thankful to God for the people who are hearing this letter and who have been redeemed. Paul's excited. He's thankful for them. And I'm thankful for you. Your dear people, This is not on the, on the script. I'm going to go off script. This week, I, was a, I felt I was spiritually attacked probably more than once. I believe that if we can understand this passage and understand how much God loves us and wants to work through us and wants to love us, we will live lives that are changed. So I challenge you this morning, even when you get bored, fight through it and hear. Fight through it. Because God has something from his word this morning that will change your life. He spoke of thankfulness. Being thankful to God for the people who were hearing this letter and who have been redeemed. Again, he was thankful and I am thankful for you. Who are these people? There are those who have believed the gospel. Specifically, he was talking about the Ephesians, but I'm talking about you. We follow in a long line of godly people. 
He's talking about you. In verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. I do not cease. Well, we would ask, for this, for what reason? For, for what reason are you talking about? The entire sentence before. And that sentence is what? 202 words in the Greek language, which is not, does not stop. It is one continuous sentence. You know, the sentence that declares the awesome truths that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing, that we've been chosen even before the world was created to be made holy and blameless before God. You know that sentence, the one that says that you have been predestined for adoption into God's family before the foundation of the world. You know that sentence because it was God's choice. It was His will to do this. You know that sentence. He praises God that the Ephesians and He have been redeemed from the slave market of sin and have been forgiven according to the riches of His grace. You know the sentence, all of these being poured out generously, not frugally, not with a closed fist, but with an open hand. God loves you. He gives thanks that we're a part of the grand plan to reunite all things together in Christ. He's thankful that they and He have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee, a down payment of the inheritance that awaits all who are in Christ. You know the sentence. He gives thanks to God for their faith in the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is the only way to salvation. He is the only way who anyone can ever stand before God. It's Jesus. This truth is proven by many verses. Here, here are just a few. We've heard this one. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. One another. From Acts 16, when the Philippian jailer came in after an earthquake, when he thought that the men had left, you know the answer. He said, what must I do to be saved? And it was written, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Jesus himself declares, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Believes. Believes what? Believes in him. Jesus warns the self-righteous religious leaders two chapters later. He told them, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. It's all Jesus. It's all Him. And finally, what we'll focus on next week, God willing. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that anyone may boast. Salvation comes only 
by believing the good news, also known as the gospel. Well, what is the good news? Simply this. To the people of Corinth, Paul wrote very succinctly, very quickly, two verses. For I delivered to you as first importance that I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the gospel. And then meaning and speaking of the Lord Jesus, He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's the gospel. Well, back to today's passage. Paul had heard of their faith. How did he know it was real? A lot of people say they believe. How did he know it was real? How did he know they had truly believed? How did he know it just wasn't lip service? because of what God was doing in their midst. Their faith in Christ had changed them from the inside out. It changed them. And it was being proved. It was proved by their love. Now, when we look at the Scriptures, what we'll see here, it's proved by their love for those who they liked. That's you're going, what? No, no that, that was meant to be, it's a false statement. For only those who he liked? For only those who liked the same team as he did? For only those who are the same gender? Who are those, only those who are the same race? Same ethnicity? No, church, what does it say? Your love towards all the saints. Every single one of them. R. Kent Hughes writes, and I quote, significant here is the word all. They loved all their fellow Christians. The reason this is so striking, of course, is that this is often not true in Christian circles. As Jonathan Swift, himself a clergyman, so rightly observed, we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. Our surface Christianity arms us with what we think are proper prejudices and rationale for criticizing those who fall short, keeping them at arm's length. Not so with the Ephesians. That is why the word for love here is agape, a thoughtful, volitional, purposeful love that wills to, to love even the, the unlovely, the very love of God Himself. The very love of God Himself. We love because our Father loves. It's a family trait. One more verse and then we'll move forward. How do you know you've been changed? We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. It's a litmus test. So 
So Paul prayed and gave thanksgiving for the saints in Ephesus. He also knew that to be all that they could be, the believers needed to know what riches they already had in their possession. He continues his prayer with intercession for the saints. Now, before you think these words were only for someone who lived uh, roughly 1,900 and so years ago, think again. These words, these ideas, these direct requests made to God are as important today as they were then. They were important this week to me. They were important, and they're important for us to know. They're words that you might pray for others, and they're words that you might pray for yourself. Peter O'Brien writes, petitionary, petitionary. Intercessory prayer is an essential weapon in the apostolic armory. And you're going, what are you talking about there? That means Paul prayed for his people. If you look through this book, you go all the way to chapter 6, he wanted people to pray for him. He said, please pray for me that I open my mouth, that I'll declare the gospel. And he prayed for them. The battle isn't ultimately waged with, with man. The battle was waged with spiritual powers in high places. Let's continue at the end of verse 16. Remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now, I wrote this in bold, so I would make sure that I would say this, and I want to say it with emphasis. Understanding where every spiritual source comes from is vital. Every spiritual source. I know I seem like a broken record. Love classic vinyl. It just, dink. You know, it clicks back. We need a reminder. Look back at verse 3 of this chapter. Verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Notice, not just some, all, everyone. Now, to be clear, I'm not speaking about spiritual gifts here. I'm speaking about spiritual blessings. Spiritual gifts Someone could be a great teacher. You've been t uh, gifted by God to teach, or you've been gifted God, by God to have mercy. I'm talking about blessings here. Maybe it, you might think this. You might ask, well, what do you mean? Well, someone might say this, I need more grace. I need more grace to be able to do that. We've been promised sufficient grace. My grace is sufficient for you. 
It's the verse that I'm thinking of. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul was going through hell. And God told him his grace was sufficient. I need more spiritual strength. I need more spiritual strength to be able to do what he's called me to do. We're told this, and it's not Tim, Tim Tebow with a, a Philippians 4.13 on his, on his cheek. I'm not bagging on Tim Tebow. But the verse in context, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You have a, a spiritual problem. You need spiritual strength. You have it. You have everything. I need more peace. I don't have the peace of God. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You have peace. He gives peace. He is peace. We have all we need. We need to grasp who we are and what we possess. Church, we have to know. So, do you understand we already have all the blessings that we'll, we'll ever have? Listen to that. We already have all the blessings that we will ever have from God. They're in Christ. Hear me. If you're in Christ, if you know Christ, you have what? And maybe even more specifically, you have who you need. All right, let's look back to verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. What's it mean to know Christ? What's it mean to know Him? Well, it begins with true spiritual wisdom. Now, I need you to get your thinking hats on. The ESV translate this, the verse this way and say, they may give you the spirit of wisdom. But we already know that we've been sealed by the Spirit, right? We have the Spirit. And notice, the Spirit, Spirit is capitalized. We already have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. In the original language, the noun translated spirit is anathras. And you're going, whoa, what are you talking about? Anathras. It means it's without a definite article. And you're going, okay, you're uh, la, 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 la. I'm starting to, you're starting to be a Charlie Brown with the teacher talking at you. Focus! Focus. I can talk about a person or the person. I can talk about a car or the car. I can talk about a girl or the girl. It should be translated, I would say, the NASB translates this verse correctly. It may, may give you a spirit of wisdom. Spirit not being capitalized, a spirit of wisdom. Wisdom. Well, what is wisdom? Wisdom is being a skilled and sensible approach to life defined by God's standards, which begin with the fear of the Lord, which is always evidenced by one's behavior. 
And having a spirit of wisdom, it means this. It means you have an attitude of wisdom, an influence, a disposition. It's who and what you are. And it's something that needs to be acquired. It's not automatically given. The bottom line is that we would be open to what God reveals to us in His Word. It's called having a teachable spirit. To truly know Christ, to know Christ is first to have saving faith. We understand that. And the second step to knowing Him better, which is what is meant here, it's, it's more than just knowing facts. It's more than just knowing, well, Jesus of Nazareth lived 2,000-some years ago, and he, he traveled to Israel and Palestine at the time. He lived, he died. Yeah, I understand that. That's not what knowing him means. Well, how do we, how do we get to know facts? It's good to know them, but it's not enough. You know demons believe facts, Right? In James 3, or James 2, excuse me, he said, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and tremble. So just knowing facts is not what knowing God is about. Maybe the best way to say it would be to know Christ would be to experience Him. To experience Him, to have a relationship with Him, to understand who He is, to live with Him. to be more than a, a first-name basis. There needs to be a mutual knowledge, an intimate knowledge, a growing relationship, one that makes other things in life pale in comparison. And this is a choice. It is a choice. The question then, what must take place for this knowledge to flourish? having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. We used to sing a song by Paul Beloche, and it was this. It was kind of a strange song until you understand the, the context of it. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. It's what this verse is talking about. It means to have your spiritual eyes opened. You know, when your heart is, again, Paul's not talking about the heart that pumps, that little ticker that runs inside your body that pumps the blood through. He's not talking about that. He's speaking about what the ancients understood as, as the center of knowledge, the understanding, the center of thinking. I call it the, the inner control center. It's who you are. And to understand God, it takes more than physical awareness. Okay, I see Him. It takes more than that. It takes spiritual enlightening. Think of it like this. Truth comes first in your mind. Coherent words and understanding those words that are being spoken. But for truth to really take a hold of us, to affect us deeply, to ha it has to move figuratively, figuratively the 18 inches 
or 16 for some of you, 25 for Lowen because he's monstrous. <laughs> from his head to his heart, it has to move from here to here. A biblical example because those are the best illustrations. On the Sunday that Christ rose from the dead, two men were traveling out of Jerusalem. They were devastated with the fact that Jesus had died and been buried. They were going to the city of the village of Emmaus, and all of a sudden some person, some person out of the blue randomly walks up next to them and said, what are you guys doing? What's happening? And they said, well, Jesus of Nazareth was, was killed. Really? And he asked them all about everything, and they thought, he, we thought he was the one. He was the Messiah. He was the one that was going to save Israel and save us. And they go on, they keep walking, and this person begins asking them questions, doing the rabbinical, the rabbinical trick, trick, asking questions to get the answers, asking more questions. And he explains the Scriptures all the way from the prophets, all the way through, and these guys are going, oh, wow, that's, that's interesting. That's, that's neat. Hey, hey, it's getting dark. We want you to stay with us. Oh, no, I got to go. I got to keep going. No, 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 no. Come, come be with us. And they go in, they go into a place, and they begin to eat, and all of a sudden, the one who was walking with them takes the bread and breaks it open, and their eyes are open, and they see it was the Lord. And the Mormons stole this verse. Didn't our hearts begin to burn within us when he was explaining to us the Scriptures? You want to know God? Look at the Scriptures and ask His Spirit to enlighten you. Their eyes are opened. But an intimate relationship with Christ takes personal effort. And you say, well, well, how? The Scriptures tell us. In Galatians 3, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. What's this mean? By consuming God's Word. My wor your Word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Have so much Scripture going through your brain that that's all you can think about. I know that that's hyperbole. We think of many other things, but when something comes along, that's what God wants me to do. That's what God wants me to do. But also, it involves your brothers and sisters. The verse continues, because we cannot live on an island by ourselves. Teaching and admonishing, look at these little two little words, one another teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I need you. I need you. What do we need to understand? What spiritual wisdom do we need to understand? What changes us and allows us to really live as He intended? What will do the trick? And I don't want to cheapen it, cheapen it by saying it that way. What will do it? Knowing 
that He is a caring, loving God who has a glorious future planned for you. If we, you, understand this, it will absolutely change us, no matter the circumstances. Let's now read the beginning of verse 18 again and what follows. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Well, whose inheritance is He talking about? And what, what in, I, well, there are two ideas. And both will build you up. Both are, both are taught in the Scriptures, but only one is taught here. The first idea is, is not what is taught here, but he speaks of an inheritance that will be ours. Right? We will have an inheritance. We will, in the future, have eternal life. We have eternal life now, but we will have eternal life after we die. We will get, ready for this, old fee, oldies? We'll get a new body a new body that doesn't hurt anymore, a new body that remembers what was taught, that can hear what somebody says, a new body that we will live and rule with Christ with. And we'll also, speaking of that, we'll have a perfect place to live eternally. But that's not the context of Ephesians 1. I believe the second possibility is true. Wait for it. Paul's speaking of God's inheritance. You are His inheritance. Let that sink in. You, me, we are His treasure. I'm not saying this to build me up. This isn't self-esteem 101. I'm not talking about that. But He sees you as a treasure. He paid the infinite price for you. Jesus told a parable that Matthew recorded for us. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys it, buys that field. You are that treasure. Jesus goes on in the next verse. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. You are that pearl of great price. All because His glorious grace, in verse 6, speaking of the grace of the Father of glory, in verse 17, He will receive His glorious inheritance, in verse 18, you and me. Well, how can we be sure and how can we live lives worthy of calling? How, okay, you're telling me this. Do I believe it? I, oh, can he, 
Is he powerful enough to make this happen? You don't know who I am, God. Yes, he does. What do our hearts need to understand? Just how powerful your God is. Verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might. I know you're looking at that and going, well, okay, I see that. In the Greek language, he's stacking stuff upon stuff upon stuff, power upon power upon power, and you're going, okay, this, he's really big. He's great. Again, how powerful is God? How big is your God? He's, he's big. The greatness of his power. Dunamis. It's a word that we, in the, ling- in the English language, where we get dynamite from or dynamo. That's his dunamis power. It means something that has great force, it has great capability. Who is it for? Those who believe. Those who believe. According to the working, energia, energy, it's Him who is active in our lives daily, hourly, by minute. He will not stop until He brings you home. He has that great of power and of His great might, iscus, a capability to function effectively in power and strength. Why is this important to understand? A commentator writes, notice that Paul did not pray for power to be given to believers. How could they have more than what they had? He prayed first, of all, that they would be given a divine awareness of the power they possessed in Christ. Later in the letter, in, chapter, in verses, excuse me, chapters 4 through 6, he admonished them to employ that power in faithful living for their Lord. We need not to pray for power to evangelize, to witness the gospel to others. What? Believers already have that power. The gospel itself is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Writing to the Thessalonians, Paul reminded them, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We need not pray for power to endure suffering. And as an introduction to mentioning the many afflictions that he had endured for the Lord, Paul commented, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We have the power. Church, all the power that we'll ever need has already been supplied when we're we're saved by the grace of God. It's already in us. 
So when we're fighting certain sins, we need not fall into that sin. You have the power. Jesus has won. He has won. Thinking back on the introduction this morning, it just needs to be hooked up. And I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit as being a a source that we just plug into. No, He is a person. But we have to be hooked in. Paul's offered a prayer of thanksgiving for the saints. He's interceded for the believers. And finally, he gives praise to God for his great power to accomplish what he has begun. Praise God, he's victorious. Praise God, Jesus has already won the victory over sin, death, the world, Satan, and his underlings. But speaking of the great power of God displayed, now hear me. I want you to help me read verses 20 and 21. You're going to read this out loud. That should be on the screen. But we're going to read verses 20 and 21 together because this is how big our God is. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Above every spiritual entity, he's above it. going to date myself. Flip Wilson, the black comedian, always would say, the devil made me do it. No. You were tempted. You chose to. If you're in Christ, we don't have to. We've been released from the slave market of sin. Christ, and when we're in Christ, we fight not for victory, but from victory. We're seated with Him in the heavenlies, in Him, through Him, because of Him. There is power, peace, and victory. You have that. You possess that. All that's left is us to live it. Verse 22, and he, the Father, put all things under his feet, Jesus, and gave him as head, the ruler, the authority over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In many houses there are switches on the wall 
that have more than just an on-off switch. They have, they're, they're variable, they're called rheostats. They either are on a, on a dial or, or now they're, they're push button. And many people have gone into a room needing the light to read or more, more times than not, they're in a dining room and we, I can't see what I'm eating. Well, that might be on purpose, but we, we can't see. The light's barely on. The power's present, but the light is dim. The user didn't understand that all they had to do, all they had to ever needed to do, the power just had it to be turned up. Now, I know that's not a good analogy because, again, any analogy that I use is putting Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Father down. I don't mean to place them there, but I'm just trying to get it. Turn it on. This is just inadequate, but I challenge you to pray regularly that fellow believers will be enabled by the Spirit to understand the vastness of God's power for them. And pray that for yourself too. I'll finish with the words of another man. He writes, All believers struggle with the tendency or a tendency to live the Christian life in their own power and not by the power of God. Many believers struggle at times with doubt about whether God really involves Himself in the matters of day-to-day -day life. Some live their lives out of a worldview that is functionally deist, that is, acting as if God has created the world and saved us from sin, but is rather uninvolved in this world until He decides to bring history to a conclusion at the end of time. This is a vestige of our rugged Western individualism that emphasizes self-reliance. Others, by contrast, can develop a victim mentality or a sense of being trapped in a pattern of unhealthy behavior which no, with no way out. They say, I can't change, or I've been, I've been dealt a tough lot in life, and there's really nothing I can do which can become fatalistic notions that hinder people from allowing God to really work in their lives. The good news of this passage is that God does intervene and involve Himself in our lives. He can manifest His power to accomplish amazing things, both in the lives as individuals and in our corporate community. Intercessory prayer for one another is a vital practice that enables a cooperation with God and His Spirit for the mediation of His incredible power in our lives to accomplish His purposes. Close quote. It's my prayer that we go forth from this hour forward understanding the riches that we have, that we have been given to use for God's glory.